The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Advent is a season of, of waiting, a season of waiting. It's something hard to do. And Advent is um, it's a time in the church year to cultivate an awareness of God's actions, past, present, and future, what He has done, what He has promised to do, and we, we still long for so much that is yet to be accomplished. We come together to tell the story of God, of who He is and what He has done, what He promises to do. Today we hear these stories as people who, who wait uh, for Jesus' second coming, and so we, we read these stories in, in uh, perspective as we have seen the coming Messiah. We have seen so much of what God has promised to do. He has promised a Savior. He has promised to uh, to save us from our sins. He has promised to send one who would fix the problems that occurred in the garden with Adam and Eve and that have been the cause of, of all of future guilt and shame and alienation from God. And so we look now as, as people looking back that God is faithful and we are still people who await so much. Uh, his, his work is accomplished on the cross. Our salvation has been purchased and yet we know that we are still people longing for peace, for forever peace. We struggle every day with the temptation of sin. We struggle with the, the curse of sin and the, and the, uh, the decay of our, of our bodies and our world. And so we are people who still wait. These stories that we tell each week are meant to deliberately build tension in our hearts as we see how God's people longed for God to bring salvation, we should long deeply for God to return and to bring our forever redemption and peace. We, we want Him to complete what He started. And so Advent is a good time to, to cultivate a time of waiting and longing and even tension. I know that's a hard word, one that we have been trained our whole lives to avoid and yet it's something good to enter into, desiring God uh, to, to come. Because He's not done with you. He is not done with me. He's not done with His creation. I wish He was. I wish we were done. I wish, all, I wish when He said, it is finished, what He meant was, you will no longer hurt anymore. But He's not done with us. He's not done with His work. And so we wait. And we wait in faith and in hope. We wait for Jesus to reign as King over all creation and perfect love and righteousness. One of the themes of, of many Christmas songs, which maybe you don't even notice, but this theme of His kingship and reign over our lives and hearts and, and all of creation is so prominent in many Christmas songs that we sing. Here are just a few of those songs. Think of, O come all ye faithful, as we sang this morning, come and behold Him, born the King of angels. What about the song, Noel, Noel? Noel, Noel, Noel. <laughs> Born is the king of Israel. It even rhymes. What child is this? One of my favorite. Come, peasant king, to own him. The king of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. I hope you will notice this theme throughout the season as you now listen to these songs, hopefully with fresh eyes, 
This is about Jesus the King. Christ as King is central. It's centrally important if we desire to know who Jesus is and who the coming Messiah would be for God's ancient people and who he is today for us and who we, we long for him to be and to take that rightful place as king over all of creation, reigning in perfect truth and righteousness. In the opening pages of scripture, uh, shortly after uh, sin entered into the world and creation plummeted into despair, God tells Adam that a Redeemer would come and save them from their sins and make it right. And he would once and for all defeat their enemy. And he told David that a king would come from his family, from his line, and would reign forever in truth and righteousness. And these two figures, the Redeemer who would come and the king who would sit on the throne forever, are one and the same. They are the same person. All our hope is in him. And apart from our Redeemer and King, Jesus Christ, all hope is lost. And God is telling us through the pages of Scripture as the story unfolds that He intends not only to save us from our sin as our Redeemer, but He intends to reign over our lives and reign in our hearts and sustain and govern and rule over us in love. And so through the pages of Scripture, as God unfleshes this story. We learn more and more as time goes on. And let's look at this important pivotal point in the story of God's people and the story of God for his people and going to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 8 starting in verse 1. We learn, we're going to learn of three people today, Samuel, Saul, and David. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways, Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, there will be the, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and, be his horse, and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands of commanders of... 50s and some to plow his ground to to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants he'll take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work 
He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you'll cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. I imagine that there have been many times where you have had opportunity to console a hurting friend, maybe console a hurting uh, son or daughter, perhaps, and seeing their hurt, you desired to comfort them by, by bringing them to atten- the attention of your love for them and your love for them being sufficient for them. Don't worry about how that person is treating you. I love you. Don't worry that you are rejected by others. I am your friend and I care for you. Don't worry about what other people say Don't you know that that if you have me, then you have much? It breaks my heart when one of my children, in their sadness, say, Mommy and Dad, that person told me that they didn't want to be my friend anymore. Breaks my heart, and all I can think is, you know, that sometimes that happens, but, you know, I'm your friend, I'll always be your friend, and I'll always love you, and you'll always have me. And isn't that enough? Well, God's people had all they ever needed in God. They had all they ever needed in God who was their their Redeemer, who saved them, who loved them, who provided for them, who fought for them on behalf of them for their enemies. They had great victory over their enemies who tried to annihilate them and to defeat them. He fought and won battles for them and promised an everlasting residence in His forever joy. And yet as they looked out at other nations and what other people were doing, they lacked the desire for just God. They didn't have a king. They didn't have a public physical figure. Um, They didn't have a man to rule over them, and they wanted it. They didn't have a public figure to lead their armies and that would speak for them. They didn't have a mascot, and they wanted somebody like everybody else. And Samuel, who was their leader, uh, not their king, but he was a mediator and their priest and their judge between God and, and them, he was approached by the people after many years of being their leader and said, hey, you're great and all, but we want something else. We want somebody better. We want a king. We don't want you anymore. And imagine Samuel goes to God, hurt, rejected, understandably so, and he says, everyone's asking for a king. They don't want me anymore. They've rejected me. They don't want me anymore as their leader. I've told them that they don't need a king because they have you as their great king. They have you ruling over them in love and strength, but they don't want that. You're better than any earthly king that there ever could be, but they don't care. They want want what everyone else has. And, And the Lord replies to Samuel, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me as their king. They have rejected me as their loving leader. And so do what they ask. Do what they ask But first, before you do what they ask, I want you to warn them one last time. And I want you to make it serious, and I want you to tell them exactly what will happen if they go forward with their desire to reject me as their king and choose a king for themselves. And so tell them what the king will be like, and tell them this. Tell them, okay, I'll give you a king if you still want one. But know this, this king will rule over you. He will make you farm his land, and he'll tax you for it. He will take the best of what you produce and he'll use it for his own personal gain. He'll take your grapes for wine. 
your livestock for his own reputation, and he'll take all of your wives and daughters for his own pleasure. He will use them, and he will use you. He will use you to build up his own kingdom, his own prestige. He'll send your sons off to war to die for his name, and your daughters he'll put in sweatshops to work and build clothes for his wardrobe. You are going to be slaves again if you do what you want to do. And here's the kicker if it's not bad enough. A day will come when you realize how big of a mistake you made and you'll cry out to God and God will not respond. Do you still want to do this? And guess what they say? Drum roll, please. They said, yeah. I just want you, I want that to sink in for a moment. I want you to, I want that to sink in. God's mercy and grace to tell them, I'll do what you ask. I'll give it over to the desire of your heart. But this is what will happen. Worse than you can ever imagine. And they say, that is okay. What has happened? What has happened in these people and in their hearts to do this? The story points to a time, a long time ago, when God's people led by fear and unbelief, desired to pursue a life of prosperity and comfort in their temporary home by forming an alliance with immoral political powers at any cost. A long time ago, this is what God's people were like. A long time ago. We pick up my sarcasm. Laying it on pretty thick. A long time ago, God's people, led by fear and unbelief, desired to align themselves with immoral political leaders for their own comfort a long time ago, like a week ago. (laughs) What has happened? Why does this happen to God's people? It has always been this way. To, to, led by fear, led by the desire to be like others, led by comfort in their temporary home led by fear of what might be taken from them if they don't have this king. They rejected God. They didn't trust in God's provision. And they said, we, we want to see it. We want to feel it with our own hands. Even if it destroys us, we still want it. And you thought the Bible doesn't speak to contemporary political issues. Well, the Lord led Samuel to a wealthy family He says, do what they have asked. He leads them to a wealthy family among the tribes of Benjamin to a man named Saul. And Saul was handsome, a foot taller than everyone else, rich and well-spoken. And the Bible says he was actually more attractive than anyone the women in his hometown have ever seen. And so the Lord leads Saul to a young Denzel Washington. And he goes to this place, (laughs) at least that's how I imagine it. And Samuel there appoints And he anoints Saul as king over God's people and gave him, and God gave Saul all that he needed to be a good king, all that he needed to become a leader of God that he was calling him to be. And uh, and, and as king, Saul accomplished great things. He uh, proved to be an effective leader, a strong leader, but Saul would be tested. Israel's enemies gathered for battle as they did many times during his reign and even before him. God's enemies gathered. The Philistines were more numerous than the sands on the, the, uh, on the seashore. And, and they gathered to, for battle against God's people. And Saul knew that his army was outmatched and outnumbered. 
He knew he was in trouble, and he wanted to make sure that as he went into battle, that he had God on his side. And so he wanted to offer this pre-battle sacrifice to God as, a, as an offering of praise and, and, and help, so that as he offered this sacrifice to God, God would be pleased by it and give him favor in battle to, to win in this fight. And only priests were allowed to do this. Only priests were allowed to mediate between man and God. Only priests were allowed by God's law, to offer a sacrifice to God on behalf of the people. And days went by, and Saul is looking for Samuel, and he can't find him, and he's not answering his text messages. He's not coming to the field, right? And he can't, and days go on, and the, and, and the numbers grow bigger, and the fear of the people grow increasingly uh, worse. And Saul says, you know what? We can't wait for Samuel anymore. Let's just do it. And he performed a sacrifice to God. God, please help us, and I hope you like this gift. And so, would you go with us in battle? And Saul committed a fatal error. Saul's fatal error came from believing that God's blessing comes to us because of what we do for him, what we offer to him. Saul was treating God as any other God, that if I do this for you, then you will be good to me. I will treat you with favor, I will bless you, I will sacrifice for you, and then you will look on favor with me because I have done these kind things to you. That's how everyone treated the gods, the false gods of the time. If they didn't please the gods, the gods would, would bring uh, trouble to their life. And if they pleased the gods, then the gods would give them favor. And so Saul was treating God like any other god, and God is no, he's not like any other god. This wasn't just a mistake, it was a a fatal offense to the holiness of God. And with this act of disobedience, Saul was rejecting the Lord. And when he did it, the Lord rejected him as king. And so God told Samuel, fill up your horn with oil and go. Let's go get a king of my choosing. Let's go find a man after my heart that doesn't offer me just a sacrifice, but one who loves me with his whole heart and is obedient to the commands I have given to him. Go to a man named Jesse in Bethlehem. He has a son who will be king. But remember this, as God's word tells us in 1 Samuel 16, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Samuel goes and, and, and Jesse comes out with, all of his, with his sons. Even as Samuel is drawing near, he sees these sons, and they are beautiful and huge. And Samuel sees the oldest of them all and says, oh, of course, this is the one. This is king. And God says, he's not the one I've chosen. Move along. And he goes to the second tallest son of Jesse's sons. And God says, no, I've rejected him too. Next. And he does this seven times. He does this seven times. And God says, next, next, this isn't the one. And he gets through all of them. And so he looks at Jesse and says, do you have any more sons? Well, we got this one guy. We got this one guy. He's playing with the baby sheep in the field, playing the harp. But, and that's David. But you don't want him. He's not king. Samuel says, go get him. And as he comes forward, God says, this is the man. He will be king. Go get him. Man looks at the outside and God looks at the heart. We know that David was a man after God's own heart. And it's not something we would look at. You know, so we would look at this young Denzel and say, this is probably an important person. Well, this guy looked like, David looked like Rudy or something, you know? It's just like, <laughs> put me in, coach. I'll promise to do a good job, you know? <clears throat> Early in his reign, um, right there, they had this ceremony where, his, where S- S- uh, Samuel took out the, the oil that he brought and, and he anointed 
David as king. And, and it would be some time before he took his place as king, and there would be this long struggle between him and Saul over a long period of time. But early in his reign, David was a great king. He was courageous and wise and decisive. He trusted God, and we learn that David was a man after God's own heart. But even in all his greatness all, and in all his wisdom, he was a man guided by his appetites, from his adultery to Bathsheba to his murder of her husband. David was a great king, but he was also a great sinner. He was imperfect. His psalms show us the deep wrestle that he had with sin. It also shows us his heartfelt repentance and acknowledgement of God's mercy and clinging to God's mercy for, for his whole hope. The psalms show us that he truly was a man after God's own heart, and he himself needed rescue from himself. Even though he was God's anointed and chosen king, he was flawed and imperfect and sinful. And God would promise to David that even though you are sinful and imperfect, and long after you are gone from your family, I will choose a king who will sit on your throne and who will be king forever. And he will rule over my kingdom and my people forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And he will be the true king that will guide my people forever. And after David, king after king would come. People thought even it was his own son. He said, your, your son will be, from your line, will be the forever king. And he had a son, Solomon. And Solomon proved to be a reckless person with over a thousand concubines and, and drifted from the, from, his heart drist, drifted from faith in God. And, and, and king after king, none of the kings could do quietly enough to save God's people and to live righteously, and to live obediently before God. And, they, and, and their people lived in this endless toil. Life was difficult, and they were defeated in many times by their enemies. And not a single king could do what they hoped a king would do. And humanity's condition was beyond hope at this point for God's people. The Israelites couldn't save themselves from generational cycle of disobedience and rejecting the Lord as their God. It felt truly like Israel's golden years were much beyond, like in the past. Their golden years were in the past. Their glory days were gone. They were exiles from their homeland. They were defeated and, and, and sent far away from their, the land that God had promised to them. They were oppressed, enslaved, and killed. Everything that God said would happen if they wanted a king was happening, and it was worse and more painful than they thought. And in their desperation, they do cry out to God. The people cry out, and they say, God, will we ever have a king? Will we ever have a king? Who had the heart of David and the power of his army and the wisdom and integrity much beyond his own ability? Will we ever have a king that will actually love us and take care of us and minister to us? Will there ever be one like this, to rule over us, that we should be looking for? And a man among them, the prophet Micah, replies to that question with this in Micah 5. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. No matter how inconsistent, no matter how disobedient, no matter how the continued cycle of rebellion against God and failure to love him as their true king, God's promise would not return empty. 
And God, when he, they cry out, God answers with yes. I want you to be looking for a king that will come from Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the smallest clan, the most insignificant place, it wasn't important. God says Satan's head will be crushed, a king will come, and the government will be on his shoulders, and it will have no end. And Isaiah, he proclaims the same thing. And we, know, we learn more and more of what this king will be like and what he will do. And Isaiah 9 says this, For, us, for to us is, uh, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Yes, God will do this. He will give you a king. You know, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem was not an accident. The birth of Jesus was not an in insignificant event. It was the most significant moment in all history, in the whole world. There on the edge of Bethlehem, a child is born, a son is given, and the Lord and his zeal accomplished this. God's zeal for loving and guiding and providing for his people is accomplished in this birth on the edge of Bethlehem to a young virgin woman. Jesus knew that he was the rightful king of the universe. And when he grew up, a time would come where he knew it was, he was ready to take his place and to present himself as the rightful king that God had promised from ages past. Matthew tells us this story in Matthew chapter 21 where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowds are gathering around him and they're shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna to God in the highest Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. What are they saying? Save us, king. Save us, king of David, the one who is from the family of David to sit on God's throne forever, the king that we have been waiting for. Save us now. Praise God. And the cry of the people claiming their king and Jesus saying, yes, it is me. I don't deny it. One thing is odd in this picture. There is this military-style pep rally for God's people, finally a king who will reign over them and defeat their enemies, the rightful heir of the throne of God. And one thing is odd. He's riding in on a baby donkey. Imagine, you know, I don't know, the president's motorcade. Instead of being all these, like, blacked-out SUVs, it's just a bunch of, like, red Priuses, you know? It's like... Like, great, who is this guy? We got an awesome king here. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? Who is this guy riding in on a, on a baby donkey? Jesus is forcing an issue. He is forcing an issue for us to see. How does a king set up a kingdom? They go to war, they take it over, they take things into their own hand, and they accomplish the difficulties right in front of us. What did the Israelites want, the, uh, the ancient people? What would they want? They wanted action. They wanted, a, they wanted God to do something. What did Saul want? He wanted God to respond. He took things into his own hands. Jesus is telling us that how a normal king sets up a kingdom is going to war and taking it over. How does Jesus set up his kingdom? He goes to the cross. He rides to the cross. Yes, Jesus is the promised king, the promised Messiah, the son of David who would sit on the throne forever. He has come 
and to save us from our enemies, but he does not do it the way that we think he would. He does it through humiliation and through suffering. Right in this story, we see the gospel. Right in this story, we see the message of God and what we are to see. He's not trying to confuse us. He's showing us the whole picture of who he is. He's the majestic king, and he's our humble servant. When the Israelites demanded a king, they put themselves in the place of king and God in the place of servant. They said, God, you're the servant to us. We will tell you what to do, and we are the king of our own lives. When Saul disobeyed God and offered a sacrifice to God instead of being obedient, Saul was saying, no, God, you are the servant. You listen to me. You serve us. I am the king in this story. In both times, sinners are acting like the king and putting themselves in the place of the king. What does Jesus do for us? Here's what Christianity is all about. Where sinners often put themselves in the place of king and make God our servant, Jesus, the rightful king, putting himself in the place of sinners. He is putting himself in the place of a servant to save us, to rescue us. I wonder how many disciples mumbled hours after Jesus was crucified in their weeping. They said, why? Why did he ride in on a donkey? He was setting himself up for failure. Why did he do that? He should have come in power. He should have come with a sword. He should have come with a horse. He should have come with an army. And Jesus wants to say, I am a king, but not the kind of king you want to make me to be. What does Jesus' kingship mean for us? It means that salvation comes to us not through strength, but through weakness. And Now, when I talk about weakness, we don't mean that God is not powerful, that God is incapable. What I mean that when salvation comes not through strength, but through weakness, It comes in God's power, not ours. It comes in God's power, not in ours. Jesus comes to a very busy city in the busiest time of religious activity during the Passover and and became a sign to the busy people of humility and peace. Jesus is not only showing us what kind of king he is, he's showing us what kind of followers we are to be who trust in him as our king. Not people just busy with spiritual activity. Not people trusting by sight and not by faith. But people formed by his character. Who embody the same kind of paradox in our character. Strong yet humble. Loving yet truthful. Angry at injustice. Yet courageously dependent on God. Waiting on him. You see, Jesus wants to show us I am a king, but not the kind of king that you want to make me to be. And Jesus said this to Pilate. He says, are you the king? Are you the king? Are you the king of the Jews? He says, I am, but not the king that you think I am. My kingdom is not of this world. If it was, then you wouldn't, I wouldn't be standing here right now. You'd be defeated. Jesus goes to the cross. He dies for our sins. He triumphs over death and sin. He rises from the grave. He sits enthroned on high, preparing a place for us to join him. His kingship means for us that his extreme kingship His extreme paradox of being strong and humble, loving and faithful, hating sin and yet knowing the outcome, it demands extreme allegiance. We have to kill Jesus or crown him. We have to reject him or submit to him. 
There are so many things confusing in Scripture. There are so many uh, ways to apply the gospel. But one of the, one of the things we cannot do is change the story. One of the things we cannot do is, is make Jesus to be a king that he has not made himself to be. We serve him. He is creator. He sustains. He governs. He reigns over all. One day every knee will bow and every tongue confess. We cannot be indifferent to this. We cannot say, oh Jesus, what a great guy. I want to be more like him. I will try in my life to be more like him. We fail to see what he actually calls us to be, to be, to give him our allegiance, to trust in him, to follow him as king with our whole lives. You know, words and people like king and kingdom truly have missed their significance in our culture. Understandably so. Our culture was built on the premise of not having a king. Our society and nation was built on we will never have a king again. We will live our lives. We will be the ones to rule over our lives. So we think it odd and we even think it disobedient and wrong as Americans to be ruled by anyone. It's important to remember that it's easy to devalue important words and concepts in the Bible like king and kingdom and sovereignty and this concept, though, was on the forefront of every Jewish person, every Israelite, every one of God's ancient people, that they were a people ruled. They were a people of God's possession. They were a people who had a king. They were told to be on the lookout for a man who would come and would be God among them. And Jesus tells us that he is that king. All of creation was designed by him and through him and for him. Everything that has happened in all of creation was done in such a way to prepare for Jesus to one day take his throne as the king over all. It means that your life is in the sovereign hands of another, and you don't have to be afraid. And if your hands are in the sovereign life of an, if, your, if your life is in the sovereign hands of another, you don't have to be in control. It means you don't have to be led by fear and unbelief. It means you can trust God as king over all, even though your circumstances are telling you that things are becoming unstable and unraveling. That the course of our history and our life and our destiny depends on, on decisions that are made right now. And God calls us to believe in him who hasn't forgotten us. You only ride a donkey into war when you know that you're in charge, right? You only ride a donkey into war when you know that it's impossible for you to lose. Jesus rides into the greatest battle of his life, the greatest battle where he will face uh, the, the greatest earthly condemnation and brutal murder of the greatest army that, is, that, that existed at the time, who had perfected the art of killing a person with the greatest pain possible, and he faced the greatest challenge and battle of his life as he took on our sin and took the wrath of God, the unbridled and unhindered wrath of God on his own body and soul. He took it all and he rode into this battle confident on a donkey, knowing that he was the king. He knew how to be faithful. He knew how to trust God. When we fear, we, when we take things into our own hands, when we busy ourselves with spiritual activities, yet we are empty in our hearts, we are in essence saying that Jesus is not really king at all. That he's a good guy, 
that he means well, that he's loving and we should be like him, but really our life depends on us. And our life is in our own hands. And we need to take control of it or else things are going to be really bad. It also means that the future is uncertain. But if Jesus is king, if in the little town of Bethlehem a son was born, and this son was, was, was of the line of David, and God had done everything that he said he was going to do, and he was claimed as king, and he died a sinner's death. Well, this gives us a great thing to reflect on this Advent season. Don't, don't misunderstand Jesus like the Israelites misunderstood him, or like Saul misunderstood him by thinking about what he could do for, for us politically or economically or relationally or emotionally. Don't misunderstand what it means that he's king over us. Give yourself to him in all of your life. Center your life on him. Make his call to faithfulness, his word, his character, the guiding weight and value and principle of your life. Let his humble power reproduce his character in you and cry out to him in a time of need because he sits enthroned as king over all. Let's pray together.